Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the fellowship we enjoy with one another. Um, it is such a blessing to um, see our brothers and sisters again here on the Lord's Day, um, coming together, um, fellowshipping around uh, you and your word. And so help us to do that by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So turn with me in your Bibles to Job chapter 40. We are coming to the end of our study today. We should finish the book of Job unless something really weird happens today. Um, we should finish. So Job chapter 40 through the end of the book. And in order to make sure we get through it, I'm going to dispense with any introduction. I'll say that last week was our introduction to what happens this week. And so Job chapter 40, starting in verse 6. Job 40, verse 6. And I'll read through verse 14. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity, and clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Pour out the overflowings of your anger, and look on everyone who is proud, and make him low. Look on everyone who is proud, and humble him, and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust together, bind them in the hidden place. Then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. So God opens this second round of this battle um, with the same words that he opened the first round, gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you and you instruct me. So once again, God is going back on the offensive, and Job had better be ready. God then asks Job four questions in verses 8 and 9. And then he commands Job in verses 10 through 13 in this, I think, ironic kind of way. But he commands Job in nine different commands to do something. Nine different ways he's telling Job to do the things that a God would do. Or perhaps to do the things that Job believes that God should have been doing. Now, obviously, there's no way for Job to do these things that God is telling him to do. In verse 10 through 13. But I think what God is ironically saying to Job is, okay, Job, you've been complaining about the way that I manage the world, the way that I govern the world. Well, then go ahead, Job. Have a go at it yourself. I think that's what God is saying. Now, that sounds strange to us. Why would God suggest that Job do this? But again, we know that for many chapters now, Job has been complaining about justice. He's been complaining that he's being treated unfairly. He's been lamenting the fact that he is suffering as an innocent man. And not only that, but on a couple of occasions, really more than, more than a couple, uh, Job has been also complaining on the other side, kind of the other side of the coin, is that he has seen the wicked or evil men prospering. So he himself, an innocent man suffering, but he also sees in the world around him people that are evil doing quite well, not suffering at all. And of course, we see that in our day as well. We see both sides of this coin. So God suggests that Job should play the part of a God, and this is actually kind of funny in verse um, 10. God says, adorn yourself with eminence and dignity, clothe yourself with honor and majesty, so that if Job is going to do the things that a God does, he should at least look like one, or at least dress like one. And what is it that these things are that Job would be doing in verse 10 through 13? Well, he'd be executing justice on the wicked. Pour out the overflowings of your anger. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. Tread down the wicked where they stand. I think what God is doing is saying, Job... If it's justice that you want, then everyone should get justice, not just you. 
such that the proud should be wiped off the face of the earth, bound up and hidden away. And then the ironic conclusion in verse 14 is that if Job could do those things, then God says, I would confess to you. I would acknowledge or even praise you because if Job could do those things, then he could really deliver himself from this trial. So, two observations here. I've already said it, but it's obvious that Job can't do these things. That's clear. But more importantly, I think the point that God is making is that this is not the way that God governs the world in justice. If Job were to do these things, he would not be acting like the one true God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because God does not tread down the wicked where they stand, certainly not immediately. Sometimes God doesn't pour out the overflowings of his anger in this life at all. Because if God did, then which of us could stand? If God were to do these things to proud people, which of us could stand? If God only ruled the world by justice, we would all be damned. And I think God is actually making a very important point. I think he's essentially saying to Job that justice or the rule of retribution is not the governing principle by which I govern the world. Um, we'll see soon enough that God rebukes Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, for the counsel that they had given to Job. And I think this is why. Because for those three men, as they were giving counsel to Job, retribution was the only explanation they had for what happened to Job. They didn't have any other understanding for what's happened to Job other than Job was getting what he deserved. But I think God is saying, no, this is not the way that I providently rule the world. Now, yes, God is just. But I think the point is, God is not only just. Now, God is more than the sum of his perfections, and we can't pit one perfection like justice against a perfection like grace. We can't do that with God's attributes. Because really, even in God's justice, he is still gracious. And in God's grace, he is still just. We could pick any one of his attributes and say that about them. In fact, we know from Scripture that it's his loving kindness and his patience that also delays his justice from being carried out. He wouldn't desire that anyone should perish, but that all would come to saving knowledge of the truth. And so I think in this little kind of ironic um, commands to Job, I think God is highlighting the fact that Job and his friends have imagined themselves, imagined for themselves a God who is so fixated on justice that it really doesn't leave much room for grace at all. So maybe while Job is pondering this, God changes the scene. Let's pick up in verse 15, and we'll read through chapter 41, verse 11. Behold now, behemoth, which I made as well as you, he eats grass like an ox. Behold now, his strength is in his loins, and his power in the muscles of his belly. He bends his tail like a cedar, the sinews of his thighs are knit together, his bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. Let his maker bring near his sword. Surely the mountains bring him food, and all the beasts of the field play there. Under the lotus plants he lies down, in the covert of the reeds and the marsh. The lotus plants cover him with shade, the willows of the brook surround him. If a river rages, he is not alarmed, he is confident though the Jordan rushes to his mouth. Can anyone capture him when he is on watch? With barbs, can anyone pierce his nose? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fishhook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you or will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you Will you take him for a servant forever? 
Will you play with him as with a bird? Will you bind him for your maidens? Will the traders bargain over him? Will they divide him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, your expectation is false. Will you be laid low even at the sight of him? No one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Now, we're going to stop there. Uh, chapter 41 continues with further descriptions of Leviathan. But let's just pause for a moment. And I think we have two questions. First of all, who or what are Behemoth and Leviathan? And secondly, what in the world do they have to do with Job and his suffering? Now, the second question is actually the more important question. Although the first question, I think people oftentimes find more interesting. Um, so who or what are Behemoth and Leviathan? Well, we have a number of options. I've given us four options to look at today on your handout. These are not the only options. There's others out there. Um, but let's think about at least four possibilities for what these creatures are. Well, first of all, um, some have said that they are representations of cosmic forces of evil, or even that they're representations of Satan himself. Um, the term Leviathan does occur elsewhere in Scripture. We've actually seen it once before in the book of Job. Chapter 3, Job referred to some sort of monster Leviathan. Also, Leviathan appears in Psalm 74 and Isaiah chapter 27. I think in those cases, Leviathan is symbolizing um, some sort of evil that God is bringing judgment, judgment upon, perhaps particular evil nations even. Um, possibly evil in the abstract, maybe particular evil people. Um, some scholars have suggested that this is actually where Satan returns in the book of Job. Um, Satan, of course, has been totally absent from anything in the book since chapter 2. Some have said, and theirs is a minority opinion, but some have said that Satan shows back up again in the form of Leviathan here. Um, we know that elsewhere in Scripture, think Revelation 12 or Revelation 20, Satan is described as a dragon. And some of the language used in the rest of chapter 41 describes Leviathan breathing out fire or smoke coming out of his nostrils. Um, so perhaps some would say God is highlighting Leviathan um, to show that God has ultimate power and authority over Satan, over evil. That's one possibility. Another possibility, perhaps similar to that but not quite the same, is that Behemoth and Leviathan are not symbols of evil, but they're some ancient um, creatures that are really unknown to us today, possibly even mythological creatures. Beasts or sea monsters are referred to in the scripture elsewhere. Um, Genesis chapter 1 mentions um, sea monsters, Psalm 148, similar kind of things. Um, so this view says, well, maybe God is just highlighting his ultimate power over even the strongest of beasts. If you recall from last week in chapter 39, um, God highlighted his power over and above even the wild ox. And so maybe God is now kind of upping the ante, saying even more strong, more powerful creatures, God is stronger still. Now, I'm not persuaded by either one of those first two views, because it seems to me, as you read chapter 40 and chapter 41, if nothing else, it seems that God is talking about real creatures, actual creatures of some sort, because he uses a fair amount of detail to describe them, both what they do and what they look like. It would seem to me that in order for God to be saying something to Job, it seems that perhaps it would make sense that Job would understand what these creatures are, that he would have seen them, would have been familiar with them. Now that said, I think we do have to admit that some of the descriptions are hard to square with any creature we know about, living or extinct. Um, in fact, biblical scholars realize this um, and they use, I think, interesting uh, words to describe what these descriptions are like. Um, David Kleins has said that um, the descriptions here um, have kind of a mythological coloring um, 
was are developed in this imaginative crescendo, especially as chapter 41 continues. Um, it's been noted by some that these descriptions are literary, perhaps not meant to be entirely realistic. And my favorite assessment is that these animals are described with a hyperbolic intensity. And I think they are. And that way, I think it makes it difficult for us to be too dogmatic about what they might be. Um, but still, it seems to me that they're pointing to real creatures, not symbols of evil or even of Satan. So a third view, which sees real animals here, could be that Behemoth and Leviathan are prehistoric animals that are extinct, dinosaurs. Um, perhaps uh, Behemoth is the Apatosaurus, the big plant-eating dinosaur, which of course was formerly known as Brontosaurus. Um, and then Leviathan maybe is the seagoing dinosaur plesiosaur. Think Loch Ness Monster. Now this view is attractive to some, I think, for at least two reasons. Um, again, the, the physical descriptions described here might seem to fit dinosaurs, or it could be that it might doesn't seem to fit any other animal we know about, so then maybe they default back to dinosaur. That's one reason it could be attractive, the descriptions themselves. Another is that this dinosaur interpretation is pretty popular with the creation apologists, from men that I hadn't heard of, like Henry Morris, David Allen Deal, and the more familiar to us, perhaps, the brothers Ham, it answers in Genesis. Um, interestingly, um, the study notes in the MacArthur Study Bible follow that interpretation of dinosaurs. Now, nobody throw your MacArthur Study Bible at me, but I think we need to be careful with this sort of interpretation of dinosaurs. Um, it could be that Behemoth and Leviathan were dinosaurs. We don't know. Um, but really, I think we need to be careful with what is the context of the book of Job. What is the message that God has for Job in these chapters? Um, what is the intent of what God is saying to Job? What is he saying even to you and me? Now, God could be saying several things, but I don't think that God is intending to say anything in these chapters about the age of the earth. I think the age of the earth is irrelevant to the message of Job. And I say this simply because I don't think that Job 40 and 41 needs to be pressed into service for a young earth creation apologetic. Now, don't misunderstand me. I hold dearly to a young earth seven-day creation view. It's not my view of creation that gives me pause here. It's really my view of the scripture and that authorial intent and context are important guides for our interpretation. So it could be that Behemoth and Leviathan are dinosaurs, I don't know. But given the fact that the dinosaur interpretation tends to be wanting to point in a particular direction regarding the age of the earth, since I don't think that's really what God is saying here, I think we should be careful with that interpretation. So, what other options might we have? Well, the Hebrew words seem to refer to some sort of super beast Behemoth clearly seems to be related to um, a grass-eating animal, but he spends a lot of time in water. And Leviathan seems to be a scaly beast who also lives in water. So while there is not a scholarly consensus on this, there is a solid, I think, history of interpretation in the church to see Behemoth and Leviathan as real animals that Job would have known, real animals that most of the readers of the book of Job throughout the ages would have known, Real animals that you and I know something about, if not in the wild, at least at the zoo, and that of hippopotamus and crocodile. Now I realize that not all the physical descriptions seem to fit perfectly with hippopotamus or crocodile, but I think we have to admit that they don't seem to fit perfectly with any particular creature. But if we think about the larger context of chapter 38 through 41, I think we might begin to be able to say two things. Um, there could be some layers of meaning here that might help us to see that maybe hippopotamus and crocodile are worthy answers to what these creatures are. 
And secondly, it might help us begin to answer the second question of what do these creatures have to do with Job and his suffering? But in order to follow that track, I must take a brief step back and think about what we saw last week in chapter 38 and 39. Because we recall God took Job on this tour of the cosmos, in the sky with the stars, under the earth, the underworld, the earth itself. He looked at the weather, he looked at the animal kingdom. All of these things God had created, he was highlighting for Job. And it wasn't strictly a lesson about this physical phenomena, but he was saying to Job, there's something about the natural order of the world there's something that Job can learn from that regarding the moral order of the world. It was going beyond just the descriptions of these animals from chapter 39. And I think we saw this last week, but I want to say it again, that there were other layers of meaning, and God was saying that God is sovereign over, he knows about, and he's in control of all things. God has made the cosmos just the way he intended it to be, and importantly, God governs the world in ways that Job can't understand. So while last week, while God didn't really say anything explicitly about Job's claim for justice, I think implicitly God was saying something about Job's claim for justice. By highlighting all of these natural features of the world, he was leaving it to Job to connect the dots. To how do I make a connection from what God is saying about what he's created to the way he governs the world and justice? Now, if that's what God was doing last week in chapter 38 and 39, I think it could be that God is using the same tactic here in chapter 40 and 41, and that there could be another layer of meaning here regarding behemoth and Leviathan. It's not about the animals themselves. But he leaves it to Job and to you and I to connect the dots. One thing we do know is that God wants Job to think carefully about these creatures. Behold now, behemoth, he says in verse 15. And then in chapter 41, he begins to ask lots of questions. He's going back to asking questions, I think, to make Job really think about these animals. What is it about behemoth and leviathan that might have a message for Job? What might these mean for him in his situation? Well, if we want to follow the track of a hippopotamus and crocodile, let's think about a hippopotamus for a moment. Just get the image in your mind. It's this huge beast, and it can be dangerous, right? I read somewhere that they're actually responsible for the most... Um, they, they, the hippopotamus kills more people in Africa than any other wild animal, which seems strange. So it can be dangerous, but really what, this, what these verses seem to highlight is its laziness and the fact that it seems to be unaffected or undisturbed by anything. It's just taking its ease in the shade, in the lotus plants, submerged in the water. We've seen this before. Not affected by anyone or anything. The water may be rushing quickly, it doesn't bother him. He's confident. No one's going to try to catch him. So he's just down there in the reeds, hanging out, only his nostrils, his eyes, and his ears above the water line. He's not bothered by anything. So someone might look at this creature and say, What is its purpose? What is the point of a hippopotamus? Does it benefit anyone? David Klein says the thing that he finds interesting about the hippopotamus is it's a creature without qualities. Like, what, what does it even do that's worthwhile? It almost seems like a creature that's useless. So it would lead us to ask the question, why did God make the hippopotamus? I don't know. Strange creature. Doesn't seem to serve any purpose. Now think about Leviathan or the crocodile. Clearly, it's a fearsome predator that the text is describing. And I know you've seen these videos. Used to be Discovery Channel, National Geographic. Nowadays, it's on YouTube, I assume. You've seen this, this peaceful, idyllic scene on the riverbank. And there's a gazelle drinking water at the water's edge. All is at rest. The perfect scene of tranquility. 
all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this monster surges out of the deep, snaps his jaws onto this creature's legs, drags it down, thrashing into the water. The crocodile's bite, as strong as it is, doesn't kill the creature. It just holds onto it tight enough to drag it under the water to drown it, and then it can eat it. It's terrible. Why would God make this animal? Why did God make a crocodile? It's terrible. So the hippopotamus is seemingly useless, and the crocodile is just this awful thing. But isn't this how Job's suffering has been? From his perspective, his suffering has seemed to be without a purpose. It seemed to be useless. Even from God's perspective in chapter 2, God said that he was incited to ruin Job for no reason. Not no reason in God, but no reason in Job. There was nothing about Job that led God to do this. From Job's perspective this entire time, I think his trial has seemed, why is this happening to me? Seemingly useless. And we would all agree that his trial has been terrible. A profound evil and loss has befallen Job. Perhaps like a hippopotamus, useless, and perhaps like a crocodile, terrible. But I think that is the way that pain is sometimes in our own lives. It can seem useless, it can seem terrible, and here's the point, like nothing that we would have created on our own. Why did God make hippopotamus? Why did God create a crocodile? Why does God cause us to suffer? It may seem to be useless and terrible, but of course we know that God has his purposes even for the hippopotamus. He has his purposes even for the crocodile. And so perhaps what God is saying to Job is that I do have a purpose for your suffering. You just might not understand what it is. And it's not something that you would have come up with or created on your own. But this is the plan that God has for Job. Because realize that Job would always be ignorant of what happened in chapter 1 and chapter 2. He would never know this divine wager that took place between God and the Satan. He would never know what it was that brought this about. But I think, of all things, describing behemoth and Leviathan... Job comes to understand something. He comes to know something. Because if you recall last week, what was the problem that God identified in Job? It was a knowledge problem. There were things that Job didn't know. And so this entire section, God's response, chapter 38 through 41, God is trying to get Job to know some things. And I think he uses behemoth and leviathan to show Job something about his suffering. So has Job learned anything? Let's look at chapter 42. Just the first two verses. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do all things and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. So what does Job know? God can do all things, and that his purposes will not be thwarted. Now, Job probably already knew those things, but perhaps he's learned them afresh. Then in verse 3, the first part of the verse, he actually quotes back to God what it was that God said. This was back in chapter 38. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And then Job answers the rest of verse 3. Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand things too wonderful to me, for me, which I did not know. I think Job is admitting that he's been speaking out of his depth. He's been asserting things, asking questions about things that he did not understand. Making complaints and lamentations about things which were too wonderful for him to know. As I've said before, this can often be the same for us, but I think Job is realizing that his thoughts of God were too small. 
And then he continues in verse 4. He quotes God again, saying, Here now, and I will speak. This is what God said, I think, in chapter um, 39. Here now, I will speak, and I will ask thee, and do thou instruct me. Those were God's words that Job quotes back to him. And now Job answers in verse 5. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see thee. Job's understanding of God's character and God's ways have increased by an order of magnitude between the difference of hearing and seeing. And I think there is a significant difference there. That Job had heard much about God in his past, before the trial ever came. There were a lot of things that Job did know about God. He had heard a lot about God. And then throughout the dialogue from his friends, he heard a lot about God. Some of it correct, some of it not correct. He had heard much about God, but now he says he has not only heard, but he has seen. Now, we don't have to get all fussed about the fact that no one has ever seen God. We know scripture makes that clear. We also realize that somehow God's appearance was probably veiled in this storm or whirlwind from which God is addressing Job. If you want to, we might say that it's eyes of faith that Job has seen God with in a way that he's been able to, unable to see before. Or it could also be that the reason these words are here that he has now seen, this could be the way that Job's desire from chapter 19 is now fulfilled. Back when he said, even from my flesh, I will see God. My, my eye shall behold him and not another. It could be that this is that desire fulfilled, that he's seen God. His knowledge about God has been enlarged. And then verse 6. Therefore I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. Now I wish verse 6 was easy, but it's not. It looks easy on the page. There's really an entire biblical scholar cottage industry on the meaning of this verse. And it looks straightforward, but it's not. And if we get it wrong, we could totally be undercutting everything we've seen already in the book. So what is Job saying? Well, I think there's two verbs to focus on. Uh, the first one is not as tricky, actually, even though my NAS says retract, and your ESV says I despise myself, right? Okay, so... The English translators have chosen two different words for the same Hebrew word, but I don't think this is that big of a deal because as I, if I understand my commentators correctly, any of you that know Hebrew, Jason can correct me, but um, this is the Hebrew word for reject. Job is rejecting something. But there's no object furnished in the Hebrew, so the English has to either provide one or imply one. And so the ESV decided that Job is rejecting his life, perhaps. I despise myself. The NAS is saying that Job is actually rejecting his words, the things that he said. Therefore, this translation, I retract. Job is rejecting something. Despising himself, rejecting his words. I think either one is fine. I don't think it's a big deal either way. The more difficult verb is actually the second one where it says, I repent. And you say, well, isn't this obvious? because everyone knows that Job repents at the end of the book. Well, let's think about this. It is true that every modern translation uses the word repent here. But if that's the case, what is Job repenting of? This is where we have to be very careful, because if we get this wrong, it'll kind of throw out the argument of the book. First of all, I think it's certain that he's not repenting of any sin committed before his trial. Because we know that the way that Job's life was described was he was blameless, upright, he feared God, and he turned away from evil. If Job is repenting of sin from before his trial, then I think at least two things would be the result of that. First of all, he'd be proving his friends to be correct, that Job actually was a wicked man, and all of his suffering came about because of God punishing him. 
That'd be the result if Job was repenting of sin from before the trial. But I think even more problematic is he would be proving his vowel and oath of innocence to now be false. Because in chapter 27 and in chapter 31, Job made an oath and a vow of innocence. And those were referring to his previous life. And if Job is now admitting to sin, then those oaths and vows have now been proved false, and the curses attached to those are enacted. The way that we looked at this a few weeks ago, and what was it that Job swore on in chapter 27? He swore on God's own life. So that if his oath now proves false, he enacts the curse on the thing he swore on, which means effectively he's now cursing God. And that was exactly what Satan suggested that Job would do if God took away Job's prosperity. So I think it's very troubling to say that Job is repenting of sin committed before his trial. I think the entire argument of the book unravels, if that's what we say. But if not that, we could say, well, maybe he's repenting of sins committed during the dialogue. Perhaps he's repenting of sins committed while he was talking with his friends and lamenting towards God, saying some, I think, some wrong things, certainly. Maybe he's repenting of sins such as accusing God of injustice and so forth. Well, I think even that might be a little bit difficult. two reasons. We have to remember that, first of all, God has still not accused Job of any sin. Throughout chapter 38 through 41, God has not pointed out any moral failing, moral problem in Job's life. The only problem that God, I think, has been seeking to address in Job is his knowledge problem, not a sin problem. So God's response to Job has been severe in its tone, but I don't think he's been pointing out particular sins that Job has been committing. Secondly, and I think more importantly, um, the word we have here, repent, in our English Bibles, this comes from a Hebrew word, um, which is not the usual word used in the Old Testament when someone feels sorrow for and repents of sin. This is the word used on those occasions, and there's a number of them in the Old Testament where, and the references I think are on your handout, um, when it means to retract a declared action. This is the word used in those places where God is said to repent or relent. Now, those passages are, are tricky in their own right because the idea of God changing his mind doesn't comport with his immutability but that's a subject for someone else to address later. Um, but I think in this case, in Job's case, I think that word makes perfect sense given Job's situation. Is that he is relenting, he is changing his mind, such that I don't think he's confessing sin, he's withdrawing his legal case. Because so much of what he's been doing in the dialogue has been pressing legal action against God. He's been bringing God to court, right? And God has now finally responded to Job, but God has not made any direct declarative statements that God has won and Job has lost. He's asked lots of questions. Job is connecting the dots in his head even though it certainly seems like God wins the case, certainly it seems that way, um, God has been pointing out Job's lack of knowledge and his lack of competence to ask these questions. And I think Job now comes to the realization on his own um, that his charges of injustice against God cannot stand. And so he wants to take them back He's changed his mind, I relent, I retract, I've changed my mind, and removing, taking back the charges he's brought against God. I think that's what's happening in verse 6. And I think he does so completely, he does so humbly, he does so submissively. He's retracting his legal action against God. 
So what happens next? Verse 7. It came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job will pray for you. For I will accept him, so that I may not do with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Naamathite went and did as the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job. Now, a number of observations here. First, we shouldn't miss why it is that God is so angry and who God is angry at. He's not angry at Job. He's angry at Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And why is he angry with them? Because it says they have not spoken what is right about God. And again, I think what, what God says here kind of reinforces what I said earlier Job has said things that are right about God. In some ways, this is Job's vindication. God says, Job, you were right, your friends were wrong. But this might surprise us, why God is angry at them, but not for a reason that I think I highlighted a few weeks ago when we were looking at the dialogue. Because it's really easy to be hard on the friends. It's really easy to be down on these guys. But I think the reality is these three guys were the orthodox conservative theologians of their day. They had a very high view of God's sovereignty, and they said a number of things that were correct, um, that God would not pervert justice, that he would always do right, and that his purposes would not fail. So why does God now say that they had not spoken what is right? Well, I think it's has much to do with the fact that they were so focused on retribution. As I said, the only explanation they had for, for Job was that Job was getting what he deserves. He must have been a wicked man. They were fixated on retribution. But I think more than anything, God's anger burns against these men for the way in which they gave their counsel to Job. Because we saw very clearly that of all the things they said to Job, the things that were missing were compassion, empathy, and love. While they may have spoken some truth to Job, they were not speaking the truth in love. And I think this could also be a warning for us. Because think about who we believe are the orthodox conservative theologians of our day. Well, it's us. We're all theologians, right? We're all conservatives, and I hope we're orthodox. But I hope that I think that this is a warning for us that even those that we think are kind of on the right side of things, God can be angry at us if we wield our theology in the wrong way and for the wrong purposes. Another observation. Interestingly, God doesn't have any words, good or bad, for the fourth friend, the young man Elihu. Now, I don't really know what to make of that. Um, people are divided on what that means. If people liked Elihu, will they say, well, clearly his contribution was a good one, so God didn't need to rebuke him. If people don't like Elihu, they say, aha, it was irrelevant what Elihu said, so God just ignores him in the end. I mean, I'm not sure what to make of it, but God does not address Elihu's contribution. Another observation is that God has required of these three men a very, very costly sacrifice, an astonishingly high costly sacrifice, seven bulls and seven rams. Now, later on in the nation of Israel's history, there were occasions when sacrifices like this were required, seven bulls and seven rams, but they were for occasions like Passover, for the installation of the ark in Jerusalem under King David, or the cleansing of the temple in King Hezekiah's day. Those seem like pretty big deals, right? 
much bigger deals than three guys on the ash heap outside of us. But perhaps if nothing else, I think it's telling us that these three friends' um, error was a significant one and that God has taken it very seriously, their bad counsel very seriously. Another observation, um, briefly, is that I think it's amazing that Job is willing to pray for these men. If you think about their bitter exchanges throughout the dialogue, Job referred to them as his torturer comforters. Okay? And I don't really, I don't know that the text is clear um, that whatever God said to Eliphaz was in front of Job. I mean, the three men could have gone into town for a coffee. I don't know when God spoke to them about what they needed to do. So Job might not have even known anything about this, and then his three friends show up, the rams and the bulls following them, and they're like, we need you to make a sacrifice. We need reconciliation. Not reconciliation between the, the friends and Job, but reconciliation between the friends and God, and they need Job to act as their priest. I think this is also a lesson for us, is that Job apparently has not held a grudge against these men. Despite the bad counsel, despite the insulting things they have said to him, he's willing to pray for them, and he does, and the Lord accepts them. Verse 10 through 17. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Then all of his brothers, all of his sisters... And all who had known him before came to him, and they ate bread with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. And he had seven sons and three daughters. And he named the first Jemima, and the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters, and their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his grandsons four generations, and Job died, an old man and full of days. You kind of just want to exhale. At least I do. Because all of this kind of tension and suspense that's been building throughout the book, it seems to be released here, at least mostly. Because the good news is Job is now restored. Okay, he's restored to even more than what he had before. When the, when the book began, he was the greatest man in all the East. Now apparently he's the greatest man in all the East times two. God has doubled the number of his flocks. Every number here in verse 12 is twice what it was in chapter 1. But still, there are some tricky things we don't have time to consider. I don't know why Job's family waited until now to come and console him. I don't know. Um, interestingly, nothing is said here about the restoration of Job's health. I suppose we assume that his illness, his skin disease resolved itself. The text doesn't say. I don't know why. But really, I think the final nagging question is that after all we've seen in this book, it might seem like here at the end that retribution is the final word. I realize that God has made clear in his response to Job that the world doesn't turn on retribution. Retribution is not the governing principle by which God rules the world, that if you're pious, then you'll be prosperous. So why is it? After all that we've seen, all of these arguments taking place. Why is it that Job now, he's submitted himself to God's lordship humbly. He's retracted his accusations against God. Why does he now, in the end, get his stuff back? It almost seems like that the entire argument of the book has been kind of undercut by Job's restoration. Well, you've probably already figured this out, but I don't think we're seeing the justice of God on display here. I think we're seeing the grace of God on display. I don't think that this re restoration happened immediately. 
I don't think that thousands of animals instantly appeared on the hillside. I think this took time for Job's fortunes to be restored. He had to rebuild his wealth the way that all men do. Lots of time had to elapse here. And it wasn't just a one-for-one restoration. It wasn't just he has lost this, so I'm now going to replace that kind of one-for-one justice type deal. God has doubled everything that Job had before. It may have taken time for his illness to resolve. I don't know. It certainly took years for his new kind of second round of children to grow up and have their own children. Really, this restoration took generations to take place. Um, And so I don't think this was retribution. I don't think it was a reward. I think it was a sign of God's generosity and grace. Finally, we shouldn't miss this in verse 14. Because Job and Mrs. Job have now had 20 children throughout the book. The first 10 were lost when fire was raining down on their house and they died. But now they have 10 more children. Of all those 20, we're never told what the names of any of them were except for these three, these three daughters. And I think this says something to us, actually. Jemima means turtle dove. Keziah means cinnamon. Karen Hapuk means container of eyeshadow. And you might say, why does that matter? Well, I think that this shows us that Job and his wife, presumably Mrs. Job, have now been delighting in their restored lives. Um, I'm sure that they oftentimes did think about the ten children that they lost. They would have had to have. But I think the names they've given these daughters tell us something. Well, they, they didn't name them like daughter of my sorrow or I'm not consoled. They gave them names that seemed to point to God's goodness towards them, enjoying this domestic new restoration that they have. I think these names indicate that Job enjoyed the blessings of this new life to its fullest extent, delighting in the felicity of God's good and gracious gifts. So that's seven weeks in the book of Job. Let's pray. We're done. Lord, we thank you for um, your word, as we always do. Um, So many things um, to consider. Lord, we praise you um, that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And remind us of these truths when we experience pain, when we we see others, loved ones, experiencing pain, um, that you do have a purpose in it, even if we can't see it. And we pray for your grace that is sufficient um, to support us in that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.